for over a decade, I shopped and worked at my local comic shop. One of the best parts about hanging out there was comparing notes on what I was reading with folks who shared my passion for comics. My comic shop is gone now, but we can still hold on to the magic of that in-store discussion. This is My Comic Shop Book Club. Welcome to My Comic Shop Book Club. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the second half of the Grant Morrison New X-Men run is returning guest, Mike Sangregorio. Welcome back. Hi, thank you again for having me. Of course, we got we to gotta continue our discussion here. So again, this is part two. So if anyone hasn't listened to or watched part one yet, please go do that. Uh, for this episode, we'll be covering the second half of Grant Morrison's run. So we're talking issues 135 through 154, and specifically the arcs uh, Riot at Xavier's, Murder at the Mansion, Assault on Weapon Plus, Planet X, and Here Comes Tomorrow. Now, uh, just to sort of tee this up, I want to share with our audience <laughs> uh, just a little snippet of a text exchange we had <laughs> recently. Uh, I, you know, I texted you at a couple of points during my reading process. I texted you after Riot at Xavier's, and I'm like, this thing was fire. It was great. I loved it. Uh, then I texted you as I got as I got closer to the end and I said that it was losing me a little bit. And you wrote something that turned out to be that couldn't have been any more accurate, which is you said, <laughs> yeah, the back half is where things go off the rails and you either hold on for the ride or get tossed. Took me a few rereads to love it like I do. I think I probably fall into the category of someone who got tossed off the ride. I honestly, I, that's, that's probably yeah. where I land on this, but I want to hear about your, uh, your reread experience here. How did, cause as we discussed in the previous episode, you are, you have been and remain a big fan of this run. Uh, so I'm just curious for you, big picture. How did the second half of this reread hold up for you? Yeah. Uh, for me, it, it held up very well. Uh, I've read this run multiple times since it came out and I, I read it on the stands when it shipped, but, um, uh, it, it holds up for me. It really does. Uh, one of the things I like is when you get towards the end of the run, everything goes faster and is very truncated. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why most of the plot points and characters that are introduced in this run aren't followed up immediately in any material way. And most of what is introduced is um, contradicted almost immediately in some cases. And uh, I feel like that has a lot to do with the fact that there are some big ideas and they just one after the other, after the other, and there's really no time for them to breathe. And as I said in the text, rereading it over and over again has allowed me to unpack some of that. But if you read it once or the first time you read it, or you're reading it while you're reading a dozen other books that are coming out, you don't, you don't necessarily have the space to process it. But for me, it, it, it still lands and it still was an incredibly enjoyable reread. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad that you enjoyed it and that it held up for you. You know, this, uh, you know, obviously we'll get into it. Yeah. I don't know that this is something that I would necessarily go back to. There are definitely looking at the run as a whole, because I was pretty hot on the first half of the run during our last episode. I, I really did enjoy it. And overall, would I say that I, I found this run worthwhile? Yes, honestly, I, I, I did. But uh, like I said, the, the, Last chunk of it did leave me a bit cold. I don't know that I would necessarily find it worthwhile to now like go back and study it and try to process all of it. That being said, you know, E is for Extinction in the, in part one uh, of this run and Riot at Xavier's, the first arc in the, the what we're going to be talking about tonight. Those are those were my two favorite arcs uh, in the run. And those are stories that I, I could see myself going back to reread. I don't know, though, that I would have it in me to do 
this entire run again. But so before we we fully dive in, uh, just a couple of quick things. As with the last episode, there will be spoilers. Uh, the the fact that you're wearing your Magneto was right T-shirt kind of <laughs> tees up some of what we're going to be talking about. So there will be spoilers here. If anyone hasn't ever read the run and doesn't want to be spoiled, go read it first and then check out this episode. And also, as we discussed last time, uh, Grant Morrison uh, goes by they, them. So we will be referring to that creator using uh, those those pronouns. We have not lost all sense of grammar. Uh, we are respecting the the gender identity of the writer of all of these comics. There was, this This struck me, and you know, you and I had an off-mic conversation when we were done uh, last time, but I actually kind of want to bring a little of that in here because one of the things that we had not talked about ahead of time, really, but that kept coming up in the episode that kind of surprised me, I guess, was, I guess, the reaction to this run at the time it was coming out and how much you personally, it seemed, because this came up a number of times in our discussion, how many times you had to defend this run you know, uh, you know, to friends and, and fellow, you know, X-Men fans. Uh, and I guess it was surprising to me because as we discussed last time, like I wasn't as plugged in to this as it was coming out. So it was just sort of in the periphery for me. I wasn't dialed in like you were. Uh, but I, in our off mic discussion, I did equate it to what I've gone through as a fan of Zack Snyder's uh, DC movies where it's like, I feel like it's a valid interpretation of the characters, but, but other fans have very specific ideas about how these characters must be presented. Is that, is that sort of the, the, you know, the dynamic that you've experienced in defending this run to other people? I in no way want to equate the Morrison X-Men run to anything done by Zack Snyder. So all I'll say is, um, the Morrison X-Men run had the unfortunate, uh, I don't know, setting of having absolutely no follow-up. So Grant Morrison left Marvel either once this run was done or shortly thereafter. And immediate, I mean, immediately, like in the next issue, things started being contradicted. Um, most notably with Cassandra Nova, who, and again, this, this is a spoiler, um, is the character of Ernst. So if you read the second half of this run, a new student is introduced at Xavier's, uh, an elderly looking woman in what is, clearly a child's wig and the character is known as Ernst named after um, the Dada, Dada artist Max Ernst. Um, that character is supposed to be Cassandra Nova rehabilitated. That is not spelled out in the text until I think the last issue or the penultimate issue. And that caused some confusion as to where Cassandra Nova was. Was she still in stuff? Was she in whatever jail X-Men villains usually go to? That's contradicted almost immediately in the next arc. Uh, it's actually further contradicted in the Astonishing X-Men arc by Joss Whedon, which I, I love. Uh, stuff actually appears there, and Cassandra Nova is a villain there. Um, and then almost almost immediately after the Magneto reveal, um, which again, I, I love, Chris Claremont, arguably the person who's written more uh, noteworthy Magneto stories than anyone alive, said, well, no, that, that didn't happen. Magneto, my Magneto, was on Genosha. He was with Professor X, or he is with Professor X. I'm going to tell a different story. So editorial had to uh, work in that the character of Zorn did exist and that he may have had a brother. It's very confusing. It is not a good story. None of the issues I'm discussing is something I would recommend reading. And again, to my original point, none of those stories are ones you're asking 
to look at 20 years later. So I, I think that's where part of the confusion came from is at the time you go to the store on a Wednesday, you buy your issues and you're like, well, why isn't A speaking to B? But again, I, I've reread the Morrison run many times and I enjoy it for what it is. And if I need to fill in the gaps on how you can get to the other stories, well, Stanley very famously used to give out no prizes for fans who could do that. And I'm sure there's better fanfic writers out there than me who could connect one to the other. But for me, I, I take the Morrison run as is in microcosm, uh, as I would a, a movie, uh, you know, or a novel, uh, completely divorced from everything else. And I try to enjoy it that way. Gotcha. No, fair enough. And, you know, like I said, I'm glad that the run, uh, you know, held, held up for you because I've through this podcast and the Superman one that I've been doing, you know, I've been revisiting a lot of stuff and I have to say, thankfully for the most part, you know, what I'm rereading, you know, holds up and, you know, I, I'm able to enjoy it in the same way as I did the first time, or, or some cases I'm enjoying things uh, in, in a new way, you know, years later. There have been a few instances where I've revisited something and it's like, oh, like this really doesn't live up to what, what I thought it was in my <laughs> head. So, you know, so I'm glad that, that it did for you, I guess. And as much as I know, you know, we could go arc by arc and I, I'm sure we will touch on all of the arcs, but I, I think we just have to dive into the big reveal as you've already, you know, gotten at here, the big reveal in the second half of this run that Zorn, this mutant they rescue in, uh, in the first half of the run and who becomes a teacher at the school and is, and is a, a, a mutant, a man of peace and, and serenity. And he's always meditating and he has a star for a head and he can heal, uh, has actually been Magneto in disguise all along. And again, like you said, this is almost immediately after this run contradicted, but within the context of this run in and of itself, what was intended by Grant Morrison, uh, that's, you know, obviously what we're discussing here. Uh, and it's in that planet X storyline that the, that reveal happens. What was your reaction at the time when you got to that issue and he takes off the helmet and you see that it's actually Eric and it's been Eric all this time? I I didn't understand it because I and again I'm talking about like literally that issue came out that Wednesday and we're all reading it. Um, I didn't understand it because I had thought that Zorn had healed people and had done things and that he had this advanced uh, background in, in China. And it's not until I reread the series where I realized that a Zorn doesn't actually heal anyone. Zorn cures the, everyone of the mutant flu strain that is introduced early on, and then uh, he fixes Charles' legs, all of which is done with the nano-sentinels that are introduced in E for Extinction. So, again, it's, it's, it's the misdirect. It's, it's like a magic show, right? Like, Graham Morrison wanted you to believe that this was a new character, that they were the man in the Iron Mask, that they had been tortured, and that they were here to, to, to teach other mutants so they wouldn't fall into the same you know, misery that they had to live through. But it wasn't. And the reveal is that, no, Magneto is back and he's going to do some terrible things. But the follow-up to that, and I think I mentioned this last week, is that Magneto doesn't accomplish anything. You know, this is, it's it's very subversive. And I, and I hate using that word because it's used by a lot of creators that I don't agree with who try to explain kind of outlandish plots. But here, I think it does work because one of the things that Graham Morrison tries to do in most of their fiction is show you why the old paradigms don't work. And with Magneto, it's always been, I want to take over the world so that people like me are safe. Uh 
as opposed to Professor X, who says, no, 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 we need to all be in this together. That's the only way to, to create lasting peace. And you see that when Magneto is at the school as Zorn, he actually does reach people and they love him and they make a human contact. And then he throws that all away. And the very first thing they do is say, okay, you're Magneto. That's fine. Where's Zorn? Because we liked him. Like, can you, can you bring him back? So in that, I feel like you are shown why Eric keeps failing time and time again, even if maybe sometimes, especially in Chris Claremont stories, he's right. So I will say, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to mention it as we got deeper into planet X, but the, the funniest bit to me in that storyline and, and definitely in the second half of this run is, is Ernst continually asking Magneto, where's Mr. Zorn? When's Mr. Zorn coming back? And he's like, damn it, child. There's no Zorn. You, we have we, we have to we have to pause on that because I love that scene and I don't just mean I, I like it or I I think that scene where where it's Ernst asking Magneto where Zorn is is a microcosm of the entire X-Men relationship because you don't realize this the first time you're reading it and again it took me a few times to really process all of Morrison's uh, unfulfilled or unfollowed up plot threads. But when you realize that Ernst is Cassandra Nova, who killed 16 mutants, devastated the Shi'ar Empire, outed Professor X, and did all these other things, but was beaten by the X-Men working together and put into a body where she could be rehabilitated. She is the one asking Magneto, where is Zorn? Where is that teacher that was able to reach me after all the trauma I suffered? That's beautiful because Cassandra Nova has arguably accomplished as much, if not more, than Magneto in her much shorter time. And she did it just to annoy her brother. She didn't do it because she wanted to save the race. She, she can't stand mutants, actually. So when they're having that exchange, it's one of those things where I say, like, I had to read it multiple times. Maybe that's not something that everyone is interested in. But the more I read it, the more I come to appreciate that scene in particular, because I feel like that summarizes the X-Men as a whole and certainly the Morrison run, where it's like, no, rehabilitation absolutely is possible, and so is integration. And then the follow-up to that scene is, of course, that Cassandra Nova leads the X-Men 150 years in the future, and she is the only one who could ultimately stop the, the real villain of, of the entire run. Yeah, I mean, well, well said. I, I guess you know it's funny, and we've gotten at this already in talking about Morrison's work. But I guess you know, for a comic fan or reader, I guess that's one of the questions they have to ask themselves: like, how much work do you want to do in you know reading, understanding, and enjoying a comic? And you know, I, I think there are, are plenty like like yourself, right? You enjoy going back and going through it again, and and you know maybe you know appreciating something that you might not have necessarily zoned, you know, honed in on the first time. Uh, whereas others, I think, you know, maybe look for it a little bit more right there on the first read. Uh, I, I guess I, I fall more more into your category, but yeah, I don't know. I, like, it's funny, as I said this in the last episode, that I've not read many X-Men comics. So this might sound kind of weird for me to say, because it's not like, oh man, I've been reading X-Men my whole life. But when it came down to this big reveal that it's like, hey, it's been Magneto all along. It just, to me, it just felt like re really like the like the standard villain because it's like so much of the Morrison run was like these big ideas and new stuff, and it's like oh like it was really just a Magneto plot all along. Now, 
the point you raise is a is a valid one, and and I think for for me, if there's any salvation here in this run, is exactly what you pointed at that that it is subversive. It's like he enacts his plan, but it's like he doesn't get the reaction that he wants, and you don't fully go down that road that maybe you did in other stories. So I do get that, and I think that does kind of uh, save it a bit for me. But I, I think that was sort of my reaction. Where and in fairness, and this is where I. The, this was like the one thing I knew about the run going in was that Zorn was Magneto. And I mean, I wish I did. And I don't know, I don't know how I would have taken it if I, if I had been surprised like readers were at the time. I, I can't answer that. Um, but so I knew going in and, but when I got to that point, yeah, it just felt like, oh man, like it's just like, so it's just been another Magneto thing. That was my, uh, I guess that was my gut reaction to it. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense. It certainly was a big reveal at the time for me because I I I had drank the Kool Aid. I, I thought Magneto was dead. I, I thought he was because um, the the story immediately preceding this was uh, I think it was called the Magneto War. So something to that effect. Man, Magneto declares war on the rest of the world, having finally gotten the nation of Genosha. It's basically a island nation full of mutants. So he's got a ton of super soldiers. He wants to enact his grand plan, and a, a scrappy team of X Men stop him. So I, I had been reading that, and then uh, he is supposedly killed when the Sentinels attack Genosha. So I was like, okay, great. He's he's off the playing field. I'm sure he'll come back. It's not a big deal. Uh, if Zorn's going to be the villain, you know, he might be a, a new, interesting villain. He's got a star for her head. Uh, maybe he is related to the Phoenix Force in some way. We know that's going to come back to play. So seeing it was Magneto was almost, I agree with you, a, a little bit of a letdown. But again, in the context of the larger story, um, where he 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 effortlessly takes over the city of New York and destroys the X-Men and undoes them and, and takes their kids away from them and does all this stuff and is met with with nothing. <laughs> with with people who are like, wait, what are we doing now? There's, by the way, there's no more fresh water. Are you going to fix that? Um, and there's something else that we've been dancing around that we haven't acknowledged, which is, you know, Magneto's a drug addict, <laughs> which is the other big reveal here, because I, I think I said this to someone in, in the Facebook group for the podcast, but Magneto is, is my favorite X-Man. I, 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 he is one of my favorite characters of all time. He's certainly my favorite X-Man. Um, and I love this story. And I love this story because it shows the, the dangers of his plan and his plot. So when he is puffing on his drug and we find more more about that drug later on in the story like he he is not in his right mind so the the more ridiculous the more malicious the more like hey why doesn't this guy resemble the character from god loves man kills or those movies i like or anything else like morrison did give themselves an out so just want to say that yes unfortunately the out is what was another aspect of the story that didn't really <laughs> work for me which you know we'll, we'll, we'll get to the, <laughs> the other funny thing about Magneto's like the execution of of his plan and the takeover of New York a lot happens real fast like I was reading it and all I could think of was uh was Anchorman the the Will Ferrell movie where they have the the newscasters have that big brawl in the park and yeah, then yeah, they're yeah. they're recapping they're regrouping after and he's like but that escalated quickly that was my feeling like reading this it was yeah. like whoa uh, I mean, again, it, it, uh, you know, it, it upped the stakes, you know, in a, in a major way, you know, very efficiently. Uh, I don't know, maybe that took me out of it a little bit, uh, just how quickly he, he took over. But, um, but, you know, to your point, you know, not, he doesn't get the reaction that he's looking for. He is all hopped up on kick, 
you know, the, this mutant drug uh, that, like you said, we do learn more about. And there there are, in addition to the where's Mr. Zorn bit, there's, there's also that funny runner about, uh, it's like the people can't see or hear him because he's too yeah. far away. <laughs> like, I, that was funny. I did enjoy that. Yeah, for for those of for those of you who are not familiar with uh, Manhattan, so as far as I can tell, based on the art and my familiarity with Midtown, Magneto and Toad and the other Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are on the MetLife Building, which is above Grand Central uh, Terminal, and he is like they're standing on the roof and they're yelling at people down on Park Avenue. You you can't hear him. You can't see him. You can't see anything. So one of my favorite scenes in that arc is where he reduces the jets to rubble and then gets mad that everyone is looking at the jets and not him. And I really, I read that more as a, a commentary on the old Magneto stories where, you know, uh, Kirby or, or Neil Adams or any of these guys would draw him with this great big Jim Lee famously would draw him with this energy bubble around him and he'd be in the foreground of the story and he'd be moving asteroids into orbit and and threatening to flip poles and doing all these cool things but it's like yeah but if you're floating a couple hundred feet above ground no one can see you do any of that stuff you know it's like if you really want to be of the people you have to go down there and be of the people you can't be standing on this building so that everyone can see how cool you are and you're in your cape and your little helmet you know yeah, very reminiscent of, you know, more recently the Shazam movie where they, they had some fun with that idea of, uh, you know, them not being able to hear each other as they're, you know, fighting, but very far apart in the skies. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, definitely a funny bit. I You know, the other thing that I, I want to make sure that we address is the art here, because, you know, we talked about that a lot in the last episode, the fact that... Uh, there, there was a lack of consistency in in the art teams in the, the first 20 issues or so. And, you know, you and I expressed that we were not fans of Igor Cordy, who stepped in a bunch of times. And thankfully, one of the things that I really did enjoy a lot about the back half of this run is that we had a lot more consistency with the art. You know, each arc had its own artist. Phil Jimenez did two arcs. Um, but within each arc, you had one artist drawing every issue. And I, and I think that really helped a lot. Uh, so, yeah, we had... Uh, so Frank Quietly did one more arc. He did Riot at Xavier's. Uh, Jimenez did uh, Murder at the Mansion. Then uh, Assault on Weapon Plus. What's your pronunciation of, of the artist's name here? Bacalo? I, I call him Chris Bacalo. Bacalo. I do not know if that is correct. I have never met him. I've never heard the name said out loud. You know, it's funny. I uh, I looked up, uh, I, looked, I searched for him on YouTube, hoping to find an interview where he said his name or where someone said it. And I kid you not, I came across like two to three videos where the the person in the video was like, you know, I'm not really sure how to say his name. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. We'll, we'll go with that. Uh, and then Jimenez comes back for uh, Planet X. And uh, and then, yeah, Mark Silvestri does the last uh, four-issue arc, Here Comes Tomorrow. His his return to the, uh, his triumphant return to the X-Men, Mark Silvestri. I couldn't believe it then. I still couldn't believe it reading it now. Do you have a favorite artist of that group? I do, yeah. I, I am so I'm a huge Chris Bacciolo fan. Uh, I, I regardless of the fact that I don't know how to pronounce his name, I, I actually do love his work. He is one of a handful of artists where um, their name on the book makes me pick it up. Uh, our friend Mark Hammond, like anything that has Chris Bacciolo on it, I just buy because I know I'm going to enjoy it, even if uh, it's not a writer that I'm a fan of. And I love Assault on Weapon Plus. It's my favorite in the back half of this, just because I really like Phantom X and I like the big over-the-top science fiction action-adventure story. I love the one-sentence premise of Assault on Weapon Plus, which is Wolverine gets Cyclops drunk at a strip club, 
kidnaps him and goes and invades basically what is the Weapon X project because he wants to know, you know, what his real name is, uh, who his parents are, basic things that were being revealed in the story origin at the time. And then they meet up with Phantom X and they end up killing a bunch of Justice League analogs. And to me, it's just like, if that had been its own story with no follow-up in Planet X, I, it still would be one of my favorite X-Men stories of all time. I just, I absolutely love it. See, okay, so it's funny you say that. I, I guess I, I didn't hate it, but I guess I, I, I just sort of feel the opposite there. And it's funny though, where you say that even if there was no follow up, because I guess that was my feeling was that I feel like that run, that arc, more than almost any other. And I know you'll disagree with me, and you'll say murder at the mansion, but I feel like that you could really lift that right out, for the most part, and you don't lose too much in the overall run. Um, I did enjoy part one of Assault on Weapon Plus with, the, you know, the, the whole, uh, you know, scene in the bar and, and Cyclops getting drunk. That was that was great. And I think, you know, um, definitely gives you some fun moments between Logan and Cyclops. I do also like the Phantom X character. That arc, though, at the very beginning of part two, Morrison was at their most Morrison, I feel, with the, the world and this yeah. dome and the experiments and all that stuff. And... Liquid time, like you said in our uh, last yeah. episode. Liquid time. And I tried to do what I did last time and just not get too caught up in it. But it's like it took me a beat to be like, what like what is going on here? And I guess the whole the whole bit about Logan trying to you know discover more about his past, I, I, that was cool. I guess I just felt because I I remember that origin had just come out and you know that was that era at Marvel. And I don't know, I guess it just kind of felt to me like that was more serving marvel's ends with that character than it was the main story that was going so i don't know i, I felt like i didn't fully connect with that arc uh, and while i do like that artist generally and and there, there's other stuff that i've enjoyed I, I don't know i didn't it just didn't work for me totally in that in that specific i wanted to like it more than i did but that first issue with cyclops uh you know at the hellfire club and then having the drinking contest with logan that that was fun i really did like that the rest of it was was a little more uh i don't know it was a little tougher for me to connect with I, I I think what you're saying makes perfect sense because that arc doesn't make any sense to your point if you don't know what's going on in the wider Marvel universe, right? If you don't know that Wolverine's origin is being told in a separate book you may or may not be reading for the first time since the character's inception, then a lot of this isn't going to make sense. It's going to be like, well, I know he's got false memories and whatnot, and they, you know, they go through this in the second film, but like, why is this so important now? Um, the other thing to point out, since you mentioned the larger Marvel Universe, is I don't know if you noticed, but in this arc, they start breaking out Weapon Plus and Weapon X. The reason for that is that there was a Weapon X ongoing at the time. And again, it's it's not bad, but it's not a book that I'm going to go back and read 20 years later. It was a very different type of book, and it was its own thing. Um, but that was part of what was going on here. Uh, I think the reason I like Assault on Weapon Plus so much is... I love the idea that whomever is in charge of making the Sentinels would say, well, we now have enough super technology under our control. Let's make a superhero team. Let's give them a satellite base in orbit. And let's convince the human beings down there that these great, the big seven superheroes are going to save them from the mutant race. And I, I just love the idea that whoever is in charge of the military industrial complex in the Marvel Universe said, you know how we get rid of mutants? the justice league and they're all going to be built from sensible technology so i just that just tickles me as a fan of comics 
I wish I felt similarly tickled. I, I really, I mean, I, like, I wish I would, you know, again, you know, you and I, we just, for anyone who hasn't checked it out, you and I did, uh, it, it's out now. We did an episode of Digging for Kryptonite. We talked about uh, Tom Welling's return appearance as the Clark Kent of Smallville. And, and Erica Durant. Yes, I know. I, I know. But I didn't have as much of an objection with what they did to her. I guess that's why I'm always, I always zero in on Clark. Uh, but, you know, we had a whole discussion about that. You and I felt very differently about it. And, and we had a great discussion. And, uh, you know, as I said in that episode, it's like, I, you know, it's like, I'm not trying to get you to dislike it. It's like, I wish I, I wish I felt the same. Uh, let's take a 30 second commercial break and then we'll, we'll continue discussing the second half of this run. We'll be right back. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. All right, and we're back. So... So Assault on Weapon Plus, that was your favorite arc of the, the second half of the run? Uh, sure. Well, the reason for that is what you were saying before about how that escalated very quickly. This one is kind of self-contained. You, you, you get the big reveal at the end that, hey, it's, it's Asteroid M and these Sentinels aren't going to work for anything in particular. Um, whereas the other stories, I, I don't feel like you can read on, on their own. You can't pull Planet X off a uh, shelf and read it. You, you need to know what happens next, and it'd be nice if you knew what happened before. But Assault on Weapon Plus is just nice. It's a, it's a good science fiction story. It's fun. Uh, it gives Cyclops something to do that doesn't involve whether or not he's sleeping with the White Queen. Uh, it's just like to me, it's just a solid X Men story. I feel like Assault on Weapon Plus is one of those um, stories that if it had come out ten or fifteen years before, it would have been an episode of X Men the Animated Series. You know, would have been like, hey, this one-off French mutant is going to kidnap Cyclops and Wolverine and invade a space station or invade the world and, and all its philosophical uh, underpinnings. But yeah, for me, that, that is just a good, solid run. And, and I've probably reread that more than most of the other ones. Gotcha. It's fun. I mean, again, like I said, you know, to me, it felt like this detour, but I get what you're saying where there's an appeal in something like that. So, uh, so I do get what you're saying. I think for, and not, I think for me, the highlight definitely was Riot at Xavier's. I thought that was such a, I mean, I was really on board for that. Uh, you know, the, the story about Quentin Quire, you know, uh, assembling this, this, uh, team of students, uh, at the school, uh, revolting against Xavier's, you know, mission statement and message of, of integration with the humans. Um, I thought it was cool. I thought it, it, you know, built on, you know, all of these ideas that had been, you know, uh, discussed and debated at the Xavier Institute over the course of the first half of the run and, and X-Men generally, right? Like how, how is, what is their role in the world going to be? Um, you know, and you get to see these students who don't identify with that and want to take it in a different direction. So, uh, that arc I thought was, was really cool. What was your take on that one? I, I would say that Riot at Xavier's is probably objectively the, the, the best arc of what we read this time around for a bunch of reasons. One, of course, the art. Uh, when the two of those people get together, it's it's unparalleled. I mean, it's, it's Kirby and Lee. Um, but, but also, to your point, it, it's the most consistent um, 
interpretation of the message, right? Quentin is a is a student at the school. And by the way, do you know what he's referencing when he's holding up a newspaper article about the way he chooses to dress? Do you know what that's a reference to? No. Oh, okay. So this is this is actually a pretty interesting piece of information. Um, he is holding up an uh, an article that was first introduced in the book Marvels by Alex Ross and Kurt Busiek uh, back I, I think in the early 90s. I don't know the exact year. But in that comic, there is a subplot about the introduction of mutants and how unlike the other superheroes, they're to be feared. They might be your neighbor. You know, who knows what's going on? Um, there is a there is a piece of art that it was either created for that or that Alex Ross used that is what Quentin Quire is holding up and showing to everyone and saying, this is how they thought we were going to dress when we enslaved them. Well, then let's meet their expectation. Let's get our hair cut this way. Let's have outfits made like this. So I thought that was a cool um, callback because while I do agree with a lot of people that Morrison's ideas can be kind of large and require a lot of work, uh, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's something that I enjoy, but I understand it's not for everything. They do know their continuity. I mean, they really do. They 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 take all this stuff in and and they process it and they they pick apart the the best things that they like and they try to give it back to you. So I, I don't think that that's a criticism that can be be lobbied against them. But I I think objectively that Right Xavier's is the best arc of this back half. I think that's the one that you know if you had only known of X Men through the movies, that is one of the ones I would give you to say no no, no these things are much smarter than you may have been led to believe. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny when you mention all of that. And and it's true. I mean, Morrison clearly, and you see this with the Batman run as well. There were so many, you know, so many callbacks to these old stories that, you know, you know, you would never even think of, but that, you know, Morrison is a fan of and, and they brought that in. And so, you know, keeping that in mind, yeah, it probably does make sense that they would use Magneto, right? It's like if they're going to write their definitive X-Men story, it's like, well, of course Magneto is going to be behind. You know, it's like it does kind of, you know, it, it does kind of make sense. Uh, but yeah, I loved Riot at Xavier's. Um, that was, now that was the arc, right, where we start to get, and correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe there was stuff earlier on that I, I didn't pick up on, but is it in that arc where we really start to get the first real hints that Zorn, there's something up with Zorn? Because isn't that where he has his class in the woods and the U-Men attack, right? And then he's taking them apart. Yeah, yeah. He actually says to, I believe it's Angel Salvador, well, this is this is going to be our little secret. And at first, it's like, well, it's not really a big deal because you've been locked in a prison for X amount of years and uh, you, you just killed a bunch of terrorists trying to murder children. So it's like, oh, okay, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. But yeah, upon reread, that is the first time where you realize that Zorn might not be the super pacifist we've been led to think he, he is because obviously he's asking a, a child to keep a secret for him. And then there's another instance too, right, where Quentin Quire is, uh, you know, going through a secondary mutation or, I mean, dying essentially, right? And Zorn yeah. puts him out of his misery, but Quire like talks about how the enemy is from within, right? It was some bit like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and that was one of the, I don't remember, one of the times I reread this thing, that was one of the times I realized like, oh, Zorn doesn't actually have the ability to heal people because <laughs> <laughs> if you, you know, he... You could almost picture it like now that you know it's Magneto, now that you know that it's a senior citizen in a in a very hot iron mask standing over this kid with dumb hair, saying like, "Oh no, no don't don't worry. In my Eastern philosophy, you're about to become one with the universe or whatever." 
translates to, I can't heal this kid. I don't have healing abilities and I don't know what the heck is going on here, but I know he's powerful enough that if I just say some nonsense, these, these dopes, the X-Men, these people I have no respect for that have been fighting since they're teenagers are just going to believe me. And, and it works like Quentin, um, uh, Quentin evolves to use the, the 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 term of the realm, and then you see him again at the very last issue. You see him in the room with the other Phoenix Bearers, and uh, it, it's interesting to note that when we began this episode, I said that most of the plot points that had been introduced here weren't followed up. Quentin's not one of them. Uh, Kid Omega, his super name, he landed. He he, I think he's still in the books now. He he's great. He's one of those characters where it's like, you know what? You are clearly going to be a supervillain. And if we expel you, we're going to have to fight you. So we're going to keep you in this school as long as possible. And we're going to try to win you over. Cause if we win you over, then we know we're on the right path. It's basically the Ernst plot line with more cohesion. And there's a, there's a great issue of, um, Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men, where you actually see Kid Omega in the future leading his own X-Men squad, very similar to the way Cassandra Nova is. So I, I love that character. I love Quentin Quire. You know, I was going to ask you this as, uh, more towards the end, but I don't want to forget, and I think this is a perfect spot for it. So I, I don't know if I would fall into this category. Maybe I would. But for anyone who, uh, you know, is a fan of the Morrison X-Men run and wants you know, obviously this was it as far as what Morrison wrote, but for anyone who sort of wants the thematic, the spiritual successors to this run, obviously we've mentioned Astonishing X-Men. What what else would you recommend if someone really was into this run and wanted more in that vein? I got to be honest with you. There, there's not much. <laughs> there, 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 I, I, there, there really isn't. I, there are plenty of great, great, great X-Men stories that followed this run. And there are plenty of great stories at Marvel that were clearly inspired by this. But the real heady, the real complicated stuff, that I just can't think of anything offhand. Um, anyone who enjoyed all this and is hearing me babble on about this nonsense and says, hey, that bald guy is making sense please read The Invisibles. Uh, I, I can't recommend that enough. I, I think it's one of the greatest uh, works of literature ever made. It inspired The Matrix. Um, so a lot of the same themes are there. Uh, for those listeners who are a fan of the Doom Patrol the show that's on HBO Max, so Graham Morrison also wrote most of the comics that that's pulling from. And though that is an earlier work, it is some of the same themes. It's actually a little uh, more raw and, and just as good, though. So definitely check that out. I think I mentioned in the first episode that, Anthony, you should absolutely uh, read those comics if you get a chance. But um, the, the number one X-Men story that I would recommend to anyone listening to this is what I just mentioned, Wolverine and the X-Men by, by Jason Aaron. Um, everyone knows Astonishing X-Men. It was written by Joss Whedon. It had a motion comic. Uh, part of it had been adapted into film, but not enough people have read the Wolverine and the X-Men run. It is all about the kids at the school and what they go through. And it's, it's almost like a Harry Potter story. So if you enjoyed any of those dynamics, just the random mutants and the coming of age story in a, you know, giant private school where Anthony and I live, absolutely check out Wolverine and the X-Men by Jason Aaron. It's got a wide variety of artists, which is why I'm not picking one over the other. Gotcha. No, I appreciate the recommendations as I'm sure our, our audience does as well. It's funny when you mentioned, you know, where we live, right? We're both from Westchester. I remember, and I'm, I'm sure you had a similar experience. I remember seeing the first X-Men movie in theaters when it came out. And the first time that they mentioned Westchester, the crowd erupted. Everybody was very excited that our uh, that our, our place got name checked like that. Was it, did you have a similar experience? 
I I did. Yeah, I, I saw it in I saw X Men One in New Rochelle, New York, and uh, I was incredibly excited for the movie. And the entire time I I was on Cloud Nine. Actually, it's it's funny. Uh, our friend. Um, uh, Brandon Montclair uh, included the White Plains Galleria in an issue of, of uh, Devil Dinosaur and Moon Girl, and the X-Men have to go there because Forge has hidden a time machine there, and that is one of my favorite comics of all time, because that is literally where I used to go to, to buy comics. So, seeing that in an issue of this comic from this guy I know who's a local, yeah, that's one of those things where it's like, it makes sense for the characters, but I love it because of how personal it is. Yeah, no, that's very cool. And that is a very fun title. I only, in fairness, I only read the beginning part of it, but I loved it. And I always meant to read more. Maybe that'll be a future uh, book club discussion. But yes, people should check out Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. If you ever do, and I know I beat this drum quite often, please read the uh, the original Devil Dinosaur written and drawn by Jack Kirby. It's very brief. It is completely ridiculous, but it's a, it's a great segue into what Brandon does. Gotcha. Cool. So with Riot at Xavier's, I know, you know, you had mentioned that you were a big fan of the, uh, the Stepford Cuckoos. They, I mean, they have the big, big development there where it's Sophie, right? Who sacrifices herself to stop mm-hmm. choir. Um, and then they, the, the survivors, uh, spill the beans about the psychic affair between Emma Frost and Cyclops to Jean Grey. And we have that big confrontation. And then that arc ends, right? With, uh, Emma Frost found, uh, in her diamond form shot and shattered into, into a million pieces, uh, which, which kicks off our murder at the mansion. All right. Now, why didn't you like that arc? Well, it's not that I didn't like Murder at the Mansion. It's just, for me, it feels like a, a filler episode. Like, I, I had to check that Graham Morrison actually wrote it, because it, it doesn't star our cast of characters. It stars Bishop and Sage, who uh, were starring in a book called Extreme X-Men, who was running concurrent to this run at the time. So it's not that I dislike it. It's just, if I had to rank all of the issues and arcs from the Graham Morrison run, that would be at the bottom, just because it has the least to do with everything else. The uh, The other thing I don't like about it is um, I don't find the character of Bishop to be very interesting. Uh, I like him. I like him in, in, in the comics when he premiered in the 90s. I love him on the show. But now I kind of feel like, why are you still hanging around? Like, you you clearly prevented whatever catastrophe was going to happen. Like, I just feel like people are constantly scrounging for things to do with him. And, and as more evidence to this, this is not me picking on him. Uh, following the Morrison run, he would actually be the only X-Man to side with Iron Man during the superhero Civil War. <laughs> Because as a law enforcement officer, he feels that he should be on the side of law and order. So he gets like beaten up by Captain America in Civil War. And then shortly after that, he becomes like a full tilt supervillain trying to kill a baby. So when I say I don't think writers quite know what to do with uh, with Bishop after his initial plotline was wrapped up, I'm not pulling that out of thin air. But uh, I think it's a good story because I think it's like a procedural, which I, I guess is okay. But yeah, when I do my reread, it's like, oh, okay, these are, these are the fill-in issues, regardless of the fact that the artist and writer are the, the, the core, the core artist and writer of the book. No, that's fair enough. I, you know, again, it's funny. I, it's, I think with, when we're talking about a lot of these arcs, I think you and I sort of classify them in the same way, but we have a different overall reaction to them. So for me, that's why I like that arc was that it was a, a mutant 
murder procedural and or you know crime procedural and i'm like oh, like this is interesting like a mutant murder investigation and it is the shortest arc uh and, and certainly within the second half of the run it's only three issues um i liked it i mean i i know honestly i know next to nothing about bishop so i didn't really i didn't have any real opinion coming in on that the 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 greatest connection i have to bishop and going back to white plains new york <laughs> Is that, and you know, there might be some people who are familiar with I really that. teed you up for that one. That was nice. When you said that, I'm like, ah, right, there we go. So, because <laughs> <laughs> when I was reading it, I was like, I don't know if I would bring up the, the comics retailer named Bishop, but now we have our segue. So, yeah, so there was a, a long defunct comic shop in White Plains called Comic Book Heaven, and the longtime manager there, uh, his real name was Keith, but he. I, I mean, I should probably just let you, I mean, do you want to just take this and, and explain to uh, listeners? Yeah, no, I, I shopped there many years. Actually, I, I shopped there before I shopped at AR. So yeah, no, Bishop was the general manager at the store. Uh, he vaguely looked like the character of Bishop and uh, he was great. He, uh, he, he gave me my books every week. We would talk. He, uh, he was a big influence on me learning about the older stuff because again these, this is the days before the internet this is the days before you could just look all this stuff up you know there weren't youtube background videos on every easter egg you, you had to talk to people and, and i would talk to bishop i would say hey by the way there was a character in this issue that i didn't recognize can you give me the one sentence he'd be like yeah sure let me walk you through that um so yeah bishop was a was a comic dealer in, in white plains new york and, and and my comic dealer for many years but uh but yeah, yeah, fic fictional bishop and he, my goodness, the, the two worlds between that gulf, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, so the retailer, so, so right, he loved the character of bishop and and went by that name, and I I believe right, he actually had his name legally changed to bishop. Oh, I've never heard that. I didn't know. Don't that. hold me to that, but I was that was okay. I if if even if he didn't go that far, that was certainly how everyone uh, knew him. the The funniest thing, and I've mentioned this on on the My Comic Shop History podcast, but. Uh, in my mind, you know, because that was not my regular shop, but I would go there from time to time. And the, I think Comic Book Heaven's claim to fame was their their back issue selection. They, you you know, you would pay for if you needed something. There was we called it the Bishop tax, right? Bishop would, uh, would you know, he would pull the books that you asked for. They were all, but there were some back issues out front, but the vast majority were in the back room. So you would hand Bishop your list. He would go back there. He would pull out what you needed. He would sit down with the price guide and uh, and tell you how much each was going to be. And it was always more than cover price, at least in my experience. Hence the Bishop tax. But so, you know, I would go there from time to time as a kid when I needed to fill in gaps in, in my collection. And I guess as a kid, like I always I was like, oh, like this guy's huge. And then I remember seeing him at a convention, you know, not, not, too, not too many years ago. And I was like, like, it just did not match this larger than life image I had of him uh, in, in my head from all those years. But, but, uh, but yeah, so reading that arc, I did think of the, the comics retailer uh, named Bishop. Yeah, no, and 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 if he watches this, I, I miss him very much. He was he was great. Um, but yeah, that that arc is funny because the the climax of it is really, hey, we had a bunch of mutant babies and we don't want to tell anyone about it, which I always think is hilarious because it's like, what did you think was going to happen? Like you're at school with uh, with other weird mutants. It's just it's just so funny of like you know. Morrison was one of the first people to say, wait, wait a second, teenagers are ridiculous. How would they actually react to this? You know, they wouldn't tell Cyclops or the redhead who's constantly on fire. They might just go out to a cabin and hope for the best. Yeah, right. Angel and Beak, they're, they're, they're children. Yeah. And, and I think Xavier says that to them, right, at, when they find out. It's like, what did you think we were going to do? Like, it's okay. But you're right. I think probably as, uh, as misguided youths, uh, 
uh, in in a situation they don't know how to handle, uh, their response probably does track. Even though you know you can kind of look at it and it's like, what, like what, like why did you think you needed to hide this necessarily? Well, it's it's even better than that because Professor X says to to Beak at least, well, who who told you this? And Beak doesn't respond because Beak is flustered. He's worried about his children. But the answer to that question would be, well, Zorn. Zorn told me this, but they don't get a chance to say that on paper. Uh, It's the same thing with the conclusion of the arc. Um, uh, Gene or or Sage, I don't remember exactly who, but someone says, well, whoever shot Emma, it wasn't Angel Salvador. She's barely five foot. It was someone who was at least six feet tall. It's again, it's, it's Zorn. They, they never say this explicitly on the page, but I always point to things like this as a way of saying that, you know, unlike other big reveals in comics, because this is a trope, the, the big reveal, the, the, the friend is the villain, the villain is your friend. Um, th- this, I, I believe, as far as I know, was from the beginning, was from the introduction of Zorn, which is in like, you know, issue four of, of the whole thing. Uh, and this is one of the things where I point to where it's like, no, Zorn was always intended to be Magneto. This was not a last minute change so that you could like prop up the book's numbers like and murder at the mansion is an excellent way of outlining that of like no this is what magneto was trying to do he was trying to sow dissent among the 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 next generation because he wanted to be in charge of that next generation so i i think murder at the mansion is is amazing setup for as you said at the beginning like the roller coaster that is about to begin like after murder at the mansion that's it it's like all the events take place in what could only be a couple of days. I mean, it's just, it's an incredibly dense uh, series of story arcs. You know, I wanted to ask you, because again, I think there, there, like I said, a few things that I definitely noticed and and I knew where, I knew what the reveal was going to be. So I was kind of thinking about that as I was reading, but I mean, so I mean, just in terms of what Magneto's actual plan was, I mean, I think you just gave a couple of examples of things that he did do to kind of sow dissent. I mean, our, and I think there's a mention later on too about the Magneto was right posters. Are we supposed to believe that he was responsible for that, that as well? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. Uh, one of the things that they say is, um, they say that Zorn is the teacher of the special class, capital S, capital C. And one of the character goes, oh, this is the special ed class. And then later on, Professor X says, well, well, no, that class is for people who've been through trauma. Zorn is someone who went through trauma and as a healer, it, we're helping, we hope they can, he can help you through this and that you can help through him through this. So again, it's that like misinformation, like Magneto believes he is the king of any realm he finds himself in. And that includes the, the, the special class of the Xavier Institute. So he puts up the special posters and he tells the kids these things that, you know, since they're not in the gen pop, they're not in the general student population, they're not going to repeat to others. He wants to make his own brotherhood. Uh, one of the things I was trying to say before, I don't know if I articulated it well, is that the big reveal in Planet X that the Brotherhood of Mutants has returned, there are all these kids from the special class. Like, Toad is thrown in there because he was in the movies. He was pretty popular at the time. But for the most part, it's just like, it's it's the kids no one else wanted. And it's kind of like, you're Magneto. You're the master of magnetism. You're one of the top five greatest fictional villains of all time. This is the best you could do. Like, you might, you might not be at the uh, top of your game here, guy. Right. Uh, and then, so, you know, we had talked a lot about Assault on Weapon Plus um, already. So do you want to jump to to Planet X, or is there anything else that you want to say about those first few arcs? Uh, the only thing I would say about the Assault on Weapon Plus is um, one of the things I noticed this time around was the, the character of 
ultimaton or ultimaton i'm not sure you pronounce that weapon 15 i love that at no point during any of these story arcs does he actually harm anyone all he does is talk about the nature of reality and the nature of existence because he was raised in in the world which is this like bubble of time that doesn't exist in the same way you and i would experience time or the other characters would experience time so i love watching him be like wait there's a whole world out there what does this mean like this character is introduced as one of the most powerful characters in the marvel universe but all they do is like babble on like a teenager talking about philosophy so that was just one of the things that i really enjoyed because that's like a morrison trope where it's like well the character has absolute power and all they're interested in doing is talking about the world around them and their connection to it so i just i just appreciated that i thought it was kind of funny right on yeah 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 uh so you know then in the planet x story i mean this is where you know everything comes to a head uh you know zorn is finally reveals himself as magneto i did think the the most effective uh reveal during that whole sequence was that he had that xavier had not actually been healed uh, you know, and that, like you said, it was the nano sentinels that were, you know, under Magneto's control that were allowing him to walk all this time, which, you know, Eric immediately takes away. And I thought that was a, that was a powerful moment. And I think that really sold like, whoa, like this is, you know, this is what's been going on all along. Uh, and then again, yeah, things happen real fast. I mean, in talking about what Magneto's plan had been, we, we do get some specifics and there are some more, uh, you know, uh, practical plans that he's put into motion. Right. So, uh, you know, Logan and Gene end up stranded on asteroid M in outer space that Eric had manipulated to be there at that time. Uh, Emma and Beast are um, are in the jet and it explodes. So they're stranded. They're out of commission. Uh, the message that we didn't, I don't think we talked about this in the first episode, but uh, th there's uh, an issue earlier on, right, where a bunch of the, the mutants are on Genosha, kind of going through the rubble, looking for survivors, that sort of thing. And they find a message from Magneto and uh, yeah. we find out that that broadcast like infected the telecommunication systems across the world. So you get to get a little bit more of a sense of how far reaching this is and, and, and what the what the goal is as he's taking over New York. Yeah, it's funny. There's one thing I wanted to mention just in case uh, anyone brings it up. But since this arc concluded, there was another very well regarded story about Magneto's time in the Holocaust where it's revealed that his real name is Max. So for anyone listening who's wondering why we're not calling him Max, in this text they refer to him as Eric, in the films they refer to him as Eric. I know his real name is Max, but that was later on. So, you know, we're not we're not gonna bring that up here. Obviously, Charles doesn't refer to him as that. Um, but yeah, to 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 your point, I love that someone must have sat Grant Morrison down and said, hey, wait a second, you just took over Manhattan. There are like five million superheroes who live here. What are you going to... And then there's that line about the black hole bomb and the outer burrows. There's this line about how we put up a magnetic shield around the entire island. There's there's this other line about how the, the message from the earlier arc is now blacking out all communication. It's one of those things where it's like, if you didn't know that the X-Men lived, you know, a couple of train uh, stations away from the Avengers, none of this stuff would be necessary. But because it's coming out every month alongside all these other books, you, you had to have it in there. But to me, it's just like, all right, whatever. Like, yeah, could you have the Avengers show up? Sure, but that's not the story they were trying to tell. They were trying to say, well, how would the X-Men deal with their old frenemy being super high and deciding that this, this was their moment in the sun? Yeah. Speaking of moment in the sun, what a, again, what another segue. Uh, you know, we have that whole sequence with uh, with Logan and Gene, uh, you know, on the asteroid and running out of air and, and uh, burning up. And, 
you know, she's in so much pain that he, you know, uh, basically impales her the same way uh, we saw in the, in the movie as well. Um, but on, in this yeah. case, of, of course, it unleashes the, the full Phoenix force and they're saved. Uh, but I thought that was an emotional sequence there. And obviously you see the love between the, the two of them and, you know, how, what he was willing to do in order to try to grant her a moment of peace at the end there. Was, was there anything about that, uh, their moments up there that stood out to you? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, first of all, Phil Jimenez is amazing. He is an amazing artist. And that type of very tender moment between two over-the-top superheroes, he, he is the perfect artist for that. Um, I love that scene because you, you you see it as a mirror of what Scott was going through with Emma, right? Scott is interested in Emma because Emma's not going to be phased by any nonsense that's going to come out of Scott's mouth because Emma's been through the ringer. So has Jean. Again, Jean has incredible trauma in her life. She just processes it in a different way. And it's a way that Logan understands. And I like that because it, it says, you know, it's not that you don't look at other people and have a connection with them, but at the end of the day, love is something different. You know, Scott loves Jean. Jean loves Scott. Um, regardless if that regardless if that love will even destroy the world, which we see in the last issue. But I love the fact that, you know, at no point to Logan and Jean kiss or make it official but logan is willing to do the last thing in the world that he wants to do which is take her life to give her the moment of peace and he's so out of it he is so oxygen deprived or whatever else that he's not thinking straight because if he was he'd say wait a second i remember going through this on the moon i probably shouldn't kill her like that might create more problems uh but i i do love when she comes back as the phoenix because i i love the idea that gene gray is more powerful than, again, a founding X-Man is more powerful than any of the villains they will ever face. Because I feel like that's what makes the franchise very compelling. It's like, you can stop Magneto and the Juggernaut and Sublime and all these other external threats, but she'll never be able to put Jean back together. Like, she she will go through this trauma as the Phoenix, no matter how many times you try to prevent it, because it's just the most interesting story. So, yeah, to, to, to answer your original question, I love that scene. I think it's a beautiful moment. Yeah. And I love when, uh, when, you know, when Cyclops enters the scene and just finally cuts loose. I mean, we've spent so long with him repressing everything that, that he has inside and then to just sort of let all of that loose on, on Magneto, uh, I thought was really badass. It was a badass moment. I enjoyed it. Well, he's very good with the depressed, as you know, and I, and I right. would say that <laughs> I was thinking of that line the entire time I was reading this, where I was like, man, I got so distracted by the sex joke. Anthony's right. That's an amazing line. But uh, yeah, I, I like it because, you know, it goes back to, to really X-Men 1, where it's like Cyclops is the the field leader of this team. He's the first X-Man. He, he, he represents what the team is trying to do and magneto is their first enemy is their polar opposite so just watching the two of them unload on each other and scott just being like why are you doing like we work so hard against so many other threats why are you doing this you could have stayed at zorn for 100 years no one would have noticed so yeah I, I agree i thought it was a beautiful release for what the character had been going through and especially i mean obviously you know the zorn reveal was a betrayal for all of them but i mean especially for scott I mean, he was, again, he's very good with the depressed. He was the one who talked Zorn down in that annual from, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, uh, going supernova or whatever and killing himself. So, you know, and they've had their adventures together and everything. So, uh, you know, escaping the, the Shi'ar Empire. So, yeah, that was really, uh, yeah, I thought that was a cool moment. But, of course, Gene pays the price for it. And, you know, we end another big X-Men arc with, 
with how, how many deaths is this for for Jim? I mean, I know Emma makes fun of that in the in the oh, here man. in the next arc, but <laughs> you know, it's so funny too because you 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 name her Phoenix, right? And you think, oh, this is great. She's got fire abilities and she's got telekinesis. But if you read the original myth, it's like, no, she's going to die. And she's going to die pretty consistently. And I feel like Marvel's been very good, even in the movies, of being like, well, no, this character is going to continuously go through this cycle of, of rebirth. But yeah, I mean, Emma kind of hangs a lantern on it. It's like, this is like the eighth time you people have buried her. She'll be back. And and she was back. I mean, she, she came back in a book called X-Men Red. And and uh, I, I think she's dating Cyclops. I, I don't even know what's going on in the current book. But um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like, again, I always go back to the point where even if you don't like everything Grant Morrison did, or, or anything Grant Morrison did, I certainly know people like that, I, I find it very difficult to point to, to an instance where the X-Men don't act like the X-Men. Like, again, I feel like they really understood the core concepts of these characters. They just weren't interested in telling the same stories. They wanted to say, well, what comes next? You know, I'm probably going to end up back at DC. Where do I want to leave these characters? It's different than where I found them, but still marketable, still recognizable for the people watching them on the big screen. And, and again, I, I feel like they accomplished it. I know uh, not everyone feels that way, but I, I, I do feel like they were able to evolve the, the the characters and kind of push them to the next level and allow them to, to do more as a franchise. So, yeah, yeah, no, no, fair enough. And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's hard for me to really speak to that without, I mean, again, you follow this so you know, far more closely, but, uh, I, I mean, I guess, although I guess the fact that I only have a relative compared to you, a relatively tangential, relationship with these characters and I even though I didn't love everything about this run I was still able to to you know to, to follow it and to and to know the characters and it you know it felt true to at least this general sense of what I know about the characters so I I no I think there's there really is something to you know to what you're saying and you know we talked about how again Morrison does subvert what you think will happen when Magneto you know tries to take over and and he's his message doesn't land and he's not able he doesn't garner the reaction that he expected and it's I, I think it's Xavier or maybe it was someone else who says you should have remained that the legend that message that you sent uh, everyone you would have been more impactful in that way than than going this route and I thought that was effective yeah, and I, I agree completely. Uh, I, I think the idea of Magneto is more important than him as a person because the idea of Magneto can be set against whatever the X-Men want to stand for on that day. I mean, this shirt is subversive. It's based on the Che Guevara, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name correctly, shirt, but it's this idea of, redu of reducing a real person who had a real struggle and a complicated life uh, and a contradictory life to an image because an image can be made to stand for whatever you want. And that's the point of the character. Like Magneto was being reduced and reduced and reduced and him returning doesn't strengthen that image. It weakens it because he gathers to him a bunch of people that he wants to teach and, and, and instruct. But what he finds out is that by being the despot, like he is with Toad, who he just commands around and says, you've been following me for decades. Do what I say. Don't question me. Just let me have that relationship. It doesn't work. And, and Toad can't magically change things. And all Magneto wants to do is gloat in front of Professor X. And again, 
I love this because I love watching the character kind of hit this wall. And it would have been really interesting if he had been able to come back and the kick was able to go out of his system and he had been able to uh, kind of explain what he really wanted to do here or even go back to the school. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Magneto has been an X-Man many times. Uh, I think he's an X-Man now, actually. So this idea of like him being at the school, it's not completely out of left field. Most of the times he doesn't pretend to be a, a Chinese immigrant, but it's worked in the past. So it's, 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 uh, it's something that's pretty consistent with his character. And, and uh, again, I, I just like the fact that he doesn't get what he wants because he doesn't really know what he wants. He knows how he feels, um, but he can't articulate that into uh, into a strategy that accomplishes him anything. Yeah, and so like I said before, as much as, I, you know, there is a big part of me that's like, okay, this is what it all comes down to, another Magneto story. But I, I did like the path that it took from that point. Although, and this, I guess, is a good jumping off point to the issue that I had with the final arc here and the, and the revelation about the back, the bacteria, which I'm just going to leave to you to explain. <laughs> but I guess, I guess the thing that, that kind of bugged me a little bit was that I like the, going back to riot at Xavier's, I like the idea that not all of the students agree with Charles. And, and I think that's still there, but the idea that you also had Magneto as Zorn manipulating events I, I just don't know how necessary that is. I feel like that does take something away a little bit from a, a genuinely interesting ideological clash. I think that's part of the problem that I have with this idea that like he's been he's been kind of, uh, you know, influencing things, you know, as as Zorn all that time. And kind of on that note, you know, that brings us to the, the here comes tomorrow arc where can you can you just explain the uh the the, the sublime of it all because uh, i you i know you've studied it and i I'll, I'll rather leave it to you sure but before we get to that i i just want to say something about what you were saying um i i agree i, I think it does take away from that but i think that's on purpose and um i, I always point to the fact that the the x-men in this arc they, they almost seem incompetent and I feel like a lot of that is due to the fact that Morrison has them focus on the bigger picture. Charles keeps talking about open day. You know, he wants humans to come here. He wants to push his message forward. But they're missing what's going on in their own house, right? They're missing what's going on with Zorn. They're missing, they didn't know this girl was pregnant. Like, like a lot of things right. like that. And I feel like this is pretty consistent with Morrison's message. To go back to the Batman run, which you and I have discussed in a previous episode, um, this is what happens, uh, spoilers for Batman Incorporated, this is what happens at the end of Batman Incorporated. Like, Damian Wayne Robin dies in action because his parents aren't paying attention to him. Like, Batman the hero and Talia the villain both fail the only thing that they claim matters to them, which is their son. It's the same way here. Professor X and Magneto say they both care about the mutant species more than anything else. Neither one of them does a great job at servicing them. Like, the X-Men and the school are great in the larger scheme of things, but, but, but again, you know, humans are still attacking mutants, and if, if, six, and if, uh, um, if super sentinels are bearing down on your island home, Magneto would have been a pretty cool defender to have. Uh, so you can kind of see both sides at times before you get into the genocidal tendencies. But but I do think that was something Morrison was going for specifically uh, to show that when you focus on all this drama and all this soap opera above what you claim your mission is, you fail. And sometimes you fail in ways you don't expect. 
Well said. I mean, that's why, you know, again, I, you're the perfect person to talk to about all of this because I know how much thought you've, you've put into it and you spent a lot of time with the material. And, and so, I, you know, I think you're able to, I, again, find these angles that, you know, maybe uh, for a first time reader wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, you know, grab onto necessarily. Uh, but so, all right. So then the final arc, the final four issues of this yeah. run, Here Comes Tomorrow, Mark Silvestri on art. It's a future story. We're 150 years into the future. I guess there too. And again, I know this is weird for me to say, like I've, I'll out myself. I've never read Days of Future Past. I've seen the movie. I've never read the comic, okay. but I know, like, I know the gist of it. And so I guess there too, it was just like, okay, so all of this was a Magneto plot. We, you know, Mag Magneto's been used over and over. Okay. Here's another future story. I guess, I, I guess that's where a part of the reason why the, the end of this run lost me a little bit, because I just felt like for all the talk that we've had about Morris, like, oh, it's so out there, so different. And then I just felt like, oh, okay. And, and again, like we said, it makes sense, right? If, if this is going to be their their stamp on the X-Men, if they're a fan of these aspects or or those other storylines, like it would make sense that they would they would weave them in in that way. So I do get it, but yeah. that did, I was a little bit let down that uh, it felt like it was a little bit of a, of a rehash, but obviously went in its own direction. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I think one of the important things to remember about Here Comes Tomorrow is that it, it is an alternate future, a post-apocalyptic future, just like Days of Future Past, which, by the way, was one of the first times that mainstream comic books did that and said, hey, we're going to check in on the future. Our heroes are not where you want them to be. And by the way, at the end of the story, Days of Future Past is only two issues. We're not 100% sure they actually accomplished anything. Um, actually, Bishop, who I mentioned before, is from that reality. And the fact that he shows up years after proves that, no, somewhere all those characters still died. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your earlier question, Here Comes Tomorrow, Planet X, and a lot of the other things make sense once you understand who Sublime was. And again, I read this thing when it was coming out, and I had no idea what was going on. This took a lot of research, which was something I enjoyed, but I understand that's not for everyone. So in the simplest way I can explain it, my understanding is that sublime is sentient bacteria. So it is the germs that can think for itself. And it's been on planet Earth for a couple of billion years. It watched lower life evolve into humans, evolve into mutants, and it does not like that. Uh, in the last episode, I said that Phantom X was Gambit done right. And by that I meant I found Phantom X to be very interesting, having a lot of overlap with Gambit, who I never found to be all that compelling. Also, Gambit wears a head sock. I don't get it. Uh, in this way, I would say that Sublime is very similar to the character of Apocalypse. Uh, before Morrison began their run, uh, the character of Apocalypse bonded with Cyclops, and they became something different. Uh, Apocalypse is never referenced by that name during this run. They're only ever referred to by their real or his real name, En Sabanur. Uh, I think one of the reasons for that is Morrison wanted to use this idea of survival of the fittest, which is based on my limited understanding how evolution works, right? So like we're here because our ancestors were better uh, able to adapt to the environment than, than their peers. And I think it's the same way uh, in the context of the X-Men. The X-Men are that concept formalized and given weird science fiction elements. So Sublime is a response to that. Sublime says, well, I've survived without evolving all of these, you know, millennia, and now I'm here, and now I can't stand the fact that you're about to inherit the Earth, because in E for Extinction, we learn the human race only has a few generations left, and that is a 
a drop of rain to Sublime, who again has been here longer than any other fictional character as far as I know. Um, so Sublime takes over the Beast, uh, who is a very hardy creature now that he's undergone his second mutary mutation. Uh, he renames himself the Beast of Revelation. Uh, he has his final human uh, you man, excuse me, Apollyon. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's also from the Book of Revelation. And the idea is that Sublime is is going to finally make its move. It's going to, you know, destroy mutants, destroy humans, become the most powerful thing, uh, take Phoenix into itself. Now, all of that happens in Here Comes Tomorrow, but the big deal is that in Here Comes Tomorrow, you realize that Sublime has been manipulating events through the entire run. So Sublime was introduced as John Sublime, but that was just its human host. It created the U-Men. It funded the Super Sentinel program, which led to the, the Justice League analog I was talking about before. Uh, in the spinoff book, Weapon X, that I mentioned, Sublime actually cameos as the head of that program. They presumably have infinite wealth from being uh, older than the concept of money. Uh, and then the, the other big reveal, which drives a lot of what we're talking about with, with Magneto and whether or not that lands is that Zorn, again, as, as sentient germs, uh, excuse me, sublime as sentient germs, is kick. It exists as this aerosol form. So every time you see a character take a hit of kick, they are actually giving part of themselves over to this enemy that they have no idea exists. Um, so again, I only got that upon my reread, and it probably wasn't my first reread. I probably needed a few rereads. But now, when you when I reread it, knowing that, I can kind of understand how Morrison is arranging the pieces on the board. I find that to be very satisfying. I, I know most people don't. Well, first, some applause there, because I think that's a, that's a terrific encapsulation of it. Thank you very much. I mean, I think for the most part, I got the broad strokes as I was reading it. I will admit there was a little Wikipedia when I was done just to be like, what the hell was this? So, <laughs> but, you know, this, I, I mean, you know, the, so right. And again, we had, you know, Morrison used Sublime, John Sublime earlier in the run. And we talked about it in the first episode, right? He is grafting, you know, mutant organs onto humans who, you know, the, who become the human, right? So there's this, you know, blend there and they want to be mutants and they want the abilities and all that stuff so you know this idea uh, though of the of the sentient bacteria uh, there's also mentioned that um it uh, what was the gist of it that like it caused aggression among species to prevent any one of them from ever fully winning and and like you said inheriting the earth right yeah yeah and, and again i i I am not 100% behind. I've never spoken to Grant Morrison about any of this. So this, this is my interpretation of what I've read online. But but yeah, my 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 understanding is that Sublime as as bacteria worked its way through the entire kind of like biosphere. So it, it talks about um, being in charge of the dinosaurs, being in charge of aggression, being in charge of the natural predators. This idea that it was creating the perfect conditions for its enemies to be taken off the board. And, and, and again, going back to what we said about Cassandra Nova, how Cassandra Nova is defeated by teamwork. Um, mutants are the end result of evolution as far as this story is concerned. It's set in the present. Uh, and, and I think Sublime is angry at the fact that 
it almost caused the conditions for humanity to show up. Like it's, it's almost like pissed off that I couldn't take them off the board before this, but also it, it's benefiting from them, right? Like sublime uh, has the human, it lives inside beast. It created the, the crawlers based on the character of Nightcrawler. It, it, it's using them and it's benefiting from them. And it's the same idea that like, as we saw with Cassandra Nova and Kid Omega and Magneto, the villains, when they just want control, they don't get anything from it. Like uh, Apollyon, the last U-Man, the, the toad to John Sublime's right. Magneto, keeps saying, well, why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you making me better? And Sublime, like, again, laughs at him. And it's like, I never intended to help you. And it's like, yeah, but that's why you're going to lose. Because <laughs> these, these X-Men keep talking about how you have to help everyone, even if they're being mean to you. You know, Wolverine's killed many, many, many people. He's still a teacher at this school because, you know, he wants to turn over a new leaf. And I, and I think that's very consistent. Like Morrison is saying that the ideology of wanting to connect with your neighbor and help people and see that you're all part of the same uh, world will always win or should always win over the entity that says, no, 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 I got to focus on me and mine and making sure that I am the most important thing, uh, which again is why you reduce Magneto to a t-shirt, whereas you know, Professor X and the X-Men, they go on. They continue in the series and they continue to be superheroes. So, I, I mean, I agree. I think thematically that does resonate and it does tie together and you see that that theme recur in the instances you mentioned. And so I do think the story is effective in that way. I guess, you know, as much as it kind of bugged me that like, oh, Magneto had, had this impossibly intricate plot and he's manipulating events, it's like this is that on kick, haha, <laughs> there you go, <laughs> where it's like <laughs> everything, you know, has, has been, you know, you, you've had these, these bacteria sort of, uh, you, you know, working uh, all along. And I guess, I guess that's where it lost me a little bit. And the, the thing that came to mind, and I'll keep it in the Marvel realm, is Spider-Man. And I know, I know you're a huge Spider-Man fan, and I know you know the, the, this arc, but when uh, Straczynski took over Amazing Spider-Man and he introduced the character of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you know, brought up this idea that it wasn't chance that led to Peter getting his powers through that spider bite, that there was actually the spider totem that chose him. And in the context of that arc, the idea of that, I was fine with. I'm like, okay, like that's a theory. That's fine. As, you know, Straczynski kept playing with this idea and it became more and more firm and started to solidify that I didn't like that as fact. I thought as a theory, like, okay, that's fine. It's an interesting idea. But I didn't like this idea that, again, that he had been chosen. I feel like it, it I don't know, it takes some, it takes a little something away from the character. And so I, that was the closest thing that kind of came to mind here, where I felt like it's too much that's been manipulated and, and too much where there's this force that's been on at work unseen all this time, you know, influencing so much, including, you know, all, all these, uh, you know, various plot points as well. So I, it, again, I don't, it's not like it's offensive to me. You're going back to our, you know, uh, Smallville crisis scene. That was, this, <laughs> this is not, this isn't something where, like, I'm not going to die on this hill. Like, it's fine. Like, it's, it is what it is. But I think that did diminish my enjoyment of it a little bit. I felt like that was a, like, I don't know, a bridge too far for me. Uh, no, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. The, the only thing I will say that I, I take solace in is the, the, the dystopia that we see in Here Comes Tomorrow, 150 years from the present, it, it does come about because of the machinations of Sublime, but it also comes about because of what I said before, which is the school closes 
And and that's a big right. deal, right? Professor X goes away. He says, I, I, I can't be here for these kids. I didn't even know, you know, my arch enemy was was teaching the special class. So he goes away and then Cyclops goes away. And there, there's a there's one panel, I believe, where it says, well, Hank tried his best and he couldn't keep the school open, which is actually a plot point that's incorporated into the first class series of movies where Beast is great, but he can't run a whole school on his own. Now, those aren't his skills. He needs the rest of the X-Men. Um and I really like that here because I like the idea that without the purposeful move towards integration, the world would eventually fracture, especially the character of Tom Skylark, who is a human with a sentinel who is an X-Man. And I think the way of getting around the Sublime plot, because again, the Sublime, yeah, they're in charge and they're doing a lot of stuff, but, but again, they're really just the enemy. The, the main conflict comes from the fact that the world is on the brink of ending and only the X-Men can save it. And, and what I really like about the X-Men and Here Comes Tomorrow is they're not just mutants. They're a bunch of different things because, again, Morrison wanted to evolve the concept of the X-Men. You have Tom, who's a human. You have Rover, who's a sentinel. You have Eva, who's an incredibly advanced sentinel who outlived Phantom X. You have Beak's grandson, who's now a great hero who reveres his father. You have Cassandra Nova, and you have a couple other mutants. So it's this idea that you don't just stop by saying, hey, humans don't want to kill mutants anymore. You keep going until everyone of every different strain of life realizes they're all part of the same thing. And only then, when you're all together, do you realize, hey, that guy over there who's possessing our friend, who's been around since the Precambrian era and has never done anything uh, useful in all that time, that's the bad guy. And if we can defeat him, we might be okay. We might make it to tomorrow. Yeah. That's beautiful. Ah, you know, so I don't know. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe I don't need to get as hung up on the, uh, on, on the plot point of sublime, I guess. And because I, I do think what you're saying from a thematic point of view, uh, is effective. Although, you know, so then the last bit here, you know, cause you're talking about how a lot of this does happen because the school closes, right? So there is this se sequence set in the present that we spend a little time in earlier in the arc and that we end on, right? Of Emma and Scott at Jean's grave where initially he's like, no, I'm done. I'm walking away. We find out, right? So in the, in the future, the Phoenix egg hatches and Phoenix saves the day. And I guess through through some time travel is able to because uh, earlier in the in the arc right when or Planet X the previous arc when Gene is dying there is this message seemingly from the Phoenix Force right telling Scott to live right and then so we find out in the future that she's sort of delivering this message that he needs to go on with his life because the, yeah I mean ultimately the school needs to stay open and all of that so that that ties together but I guess there too it's like. I, I mean, and I don't know what your read on that is. I mean, how much is Gene actually influencing, like literally influencing Scott? Because is it, you know, go, go. Uh, no, I was just going to say my, my read on this is that Scott, one of the big reveals that we glossed over is that the Emma Frost, the White Queen, loves Cyclops. She loves him. It's not a plot. She's not going to betray them. She loves him. She finds a connection to this straight-laced guy who is who has been a teacher as long as she has, who really desperately wants to make the world a better place. Uh, and it's just, it's just good. It's not trying to manipulate anyone, which is something Emma's never been exposed to, or rarely. Um, I think that Scott does 
like Emma and have a connection with her, but he loves Jean. And I don't think he'd ever act on it because he, he knows Jean's going to come back. The Phoenix returns. I mean, it's just a fact of life when, when you're on this team. And my read has always been that Jean, when she becomes not just the, the normal Phoenix, the corporeal Phoenix, but with the other Phoenix bearers at the very end, I kind of take that as, as being in a place outside of space and time, which is a, a, a concept Morrison has played with in other places, most notably the invisibles. Um, where, you know, Gene is able to manipulate things, as you said, through time travel. So Gene goes back and says, well, wait a second. What is the easiest, simplest way I can change things so that I don't have to destroy this entire continuity to remove Sublime? Um, well, it's by having my husband date someone else once I'm in the ground, someone he does have feelings for. So I'm just going to nudge him in that direction. So, you know, the ensuing stories where Scott is dating Emma, which produce some amazing stories. They really, really do. I mean, again, I think this is a great uh, sea change for the franchise, but I think it's Gene's doing. I think Gene is basically saying, listen, I'm gone. This time I'm not coming back. She does come back. This time I'm not coming back. Please go with that nice lady. Keep the school open. I may hate her. You don't. I do want you to be happy because I love you. I I guess, no, that makes sense. But yeah, so I guess it's... I don't know. So when he hears this message to to live, right, and clearly that, you know, sort of implants, right, and then that later on when he makes the decision to stay and he kisses Emma, and that's kissing on the grave of his freshly deceased wife, mind you. Um, I, I mean, I guess when I said, like, what's your read on it? I mean, is it that, you know, when that idea implants in him, is it... I guess how much choice does Scott have in the end? I guess that's well, that's where that's what I'm sort of wrestling with. Like how much of that is his free choice versus, I mean, it's one thing to know that, okay, he has Gene's blessing sort of like, or this sense that like, I can do this versus like, he's doing this because this is really what Gene like is pushing him to do. I, I've always read that. That's very interesting. I actually hadn't thought of it the way you're proposing, which is that he kind of knows he has her blessing and so he pursues it i've always thought and i could be wrong but i've always thought that she is actually pushing him she is actually saying no you you feel this but you're worried i'm going to come back i'm not coming back go go to her because it's important not only for you but it's important for for everything and again it's the simplest way to fix everything so that's actually really interesting what you're saying because i i had never considered that before that he almost hears her voice and says oh you know what I know it's okay to to move on and move past her. I always read it as her kind of pushing him and saying, oh, you, you kind of want to do this. I'm going to make you do it. And then everything else is his decision. But but I, I do like your read because it gives him a little bit more agency. Well, so I think you're right, though. But that's the thing. Like, oh, okay. I, I know. So but I know. I, I think your read is right. But that's. I guess I dislike that. I, I, you know, I guess this has become a little bit of a theme with me here as we're, as we're talking about this. Like, I guess where it seems like there's so much that's predetermined, orchestrated, not truly the free choice of the characters, that does lose me a little bit. And so I guess, especially in these last couple of arcs, when I, when I see a few instances of that, I think that's where it, it lost me a little bit for that reason. And I just kept like butting up against that. You know, that that's really interesting because I, I think I'm beginning to get a better picture of, of what's going on. So like you said, you didn't read Days of Future Past. Th- this this story is basically a retelling of Days of Future Past because something very similar happens there. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to spoil the story. But at the end, you know, one of the characters travels 
uh, Kitty travels back into her body from the future and she realizes like, oh, okay, great. We prevented the act I was told would create this dystopia, but there's no confirmation of that. And, and it ended on a similarly like very negative note. And, and I feel like what you're saying about how a lot of the characters aren't necessarily in control of their actions and there's just this, this a lot of negative energy. I feel like that's most X-Men stories. <laughs> like, I, again, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of took that for granted, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're a big Superman fan. Again, you know, Clark saves the day, goes home to Lois, um, which is, which is great. If, if you like that sort of thing, the, the X-Men is the complete opposite. Like the X-Men, you know, most of their members are going to die on missions and terrible things are going to happen to them and they live in this moral gray zone. I, I go back to the scene we spoke about in the first episode where Gene calls the Westchester County Sheriff's Department and says there are a bunch of angry people about to break down the doors of a school with teenage children. Can you please come help me? And they're like, yeah, I don't think we can do that. So she has to take matters in her own hands. And it's like, that's really dark. That's not going to happen to Superman, but it's kind of a way of life if, uh, if you're an X-Man. And I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that was actually something that I was thinking about when, once I was done with my reading of this. And I was like, you know, I've never been a huge X-Men guy. And I think there's a reason for that. Like, I, you know, I don't know that it's, oh, I just haven't read the right story yet. I mean, I and again, I, you know, I've, I've read this. I read Astonishing. I read some of Ultimate X-Men. I've read some Wolverine stuff. Like I read Origin and I read some of the Greg Rucka run like in the early 2000s. Like I've read some I've read some stuff and obviously I've seen all but the last two movies <laughs> I've seen all of them okay. you know and and some of the cartoons and stuff like that so it's not like uh, you know I and there's there's stuff about them that I like but yeah I don't know that like I I don't know how deeply I would really dive into X-Men lore for future podcasts or even just for my for my sure, own sure. reading that being said I'm really glad that I read this, you know, I, I truly, and for the most part, I did enjoy it. I mean, uh, as much as there were aspects that I didn't really agree with and stuff where I felt, you know, Morrison was like full on Morrison, but you know, again, there was a lot that I really liked. And, and as I said before, a couple of arcs that I, I really think I, I would happily go back and, and read in the future, reread. Um, yeah. But I, again, I don't, I don't think this is like the start of an X-Men journey for me. <laughs> I, I will say uh, that makes plenty of sense to me. There is there is one X Men story that I always tell people that they should read, and it's it's God loves man kills. I think I, I referenced it before. Have you read it? I have read that years years ago, but okay. I did read that. Yeah, I I think that is the best X Men story of all time. I think it may be one of the best comics of all time. Uh, it is by Chris Claremont. And I cannot believe I'm blanking on the name of the artist. I apologize greatly. Um, it, it is a one shot. It is one of the X-Men's first more adult stories. They're allowed to swear in it. And it is the rough basis for the film X-Men 2, X-Men United. Uh, it is amazing. And it has all the characters that we're talking about, but it is a much simpler, cohesive, and more emotionally um, charged narrative. It's 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 very much about the the racial overtones of the X Men story. It wraps up. It ends on a very positive note. It features some of the cast here. So if anyone listening to all of this and is like, yeah, I don't know about this nonsense. Please read God Loves, Man Kills. It is very quick. It is very good. And you only have to look up literally anything about it to find it in everyone's top five X-Men stories. So I, I definitely would say if you're going to check out anything at all, even a single issue, God Loves, Man Kills. 
Right on. Is there anything else you want to say about the Grant Morrison run before we sign off? Oh, man. I mean, yes, but I'm trying to think of anything <laughs> that isn't going to scare people off. Um, I I will say that, you know, I mentioned before about the, the characters and concepts that survive this run, come back from this run, are immediately um, uh, canceled out from this run or whatever else. I, I would recommend a couple of things. If anyone read this for the first time and is going on the Wikipedia or the Marvel Wiki or any of this stuff, and they're going to read the Zorn Wiki, don't. Just don't. <laughs> because it's it's all backed into, and and it's all a lot of what we call retconning, and it's just it's very confusing. Um, Brian Michael Bendis did a very famous story where he used... Zorn. I, I don't even know how it fits into the continuity. My, my, my point is, if, you, if you're if you going to try to make sense of this by working how it, it fits into everything else, I, I don't think that's going to be that satisfying. But if you read this on your own and you say, hey, that weird old Jack Kirby character, Surrey McKellen himself, tricked the school into let him, letting, excuse me, letting him hang out there for a while, then that's Zorn. If you want to read all the other stuff, I just I think it's going to make this seem weirder in retrospect, but again, Morrison had nothing to do with, with most of that stuff. Um, and then the other thing I would say is going, going back to assault on weapon plus, I, I love the world. I, I know, I know I, I am in the minority here, especially with you and with most of the other people I know. I just love the idea that the, the Weapon Plus program had so much advanced technology, right? Like the Marvel Universe is filled with interdimensional travelers and humans, Eternals, mutants, all this, all this nonsense, whatever the story requires. And they gathered all this crap up and they built a, a dome in Europe where time moved at a rate they could control. And the best thing they could think to come up with it was the next generation of Sentinels. Like, they could have cured any problem we have on the world, and all they did was create weapons. And I love that, because I feel like that is Morrison describing the very narrow worldview that people in charge can have, especially, certainly back then. Uh, again, it's very similar to the villains in The Invisibles, but uh, I just, I love the world. It's, it's only appeared in a couple of stories since, again, one by Jason Aaron, uh, but it's one of those concepts where it's like, if I was ever lucky enough to write an X-Men issue, someone's going to the world, I can tell you that. <laughs> All right, well, you heard it here first. Uh, listen, <laughs> thank you. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better guide uh, through this. And as I said in the last episode, this one was out of my wheelhouse a bit, but I, it was great to talk to you, get your insight. And, and again, I, I really am glad I read it. I enjoyed it. I echo what you said. I think anyone reading or rereading this, you really do have to look at it in, in a bit of a vacuum. And, and certainly that's what I did. And in, in our discussion too, it's like we treated, you know, Zorn as actually having been Magneto, which was the intent of the story as much as, like you said, it was retconned clumsily after, but I think you really do have to read it in terms of what was intended. Um, and if you do, I, I mean, again, it's definitely an interesting story, even if there are aspects of it that didn't necessarily land for me. So thank you very much. I also, you know, I didn't mention this last time, but, you know, for anyone, hopefully people listen all the way through to the very end of the episode. But, you know, at the end of each episode, I have my little outro and I, I mentioned that our art, the artwork for my comic shop book club is by Kristen San Gregorio, your lovely wife. Yes, yes, uh, I do like hearing that. No, uh, yeah, she, uh, she was able to contribute to this and I, I'm very happy about that. Yeah, I love, she did this uh, a while back because initially my comic shop book club, I did it as, as like a sub-series under my comic shop history before more recently making it its own full-fledged series. 
Um, but so, but she did that art a little while ago and, and I'm always happy to use it. And, uh, she's done other, as, as you know, uh, she's done other logos for me in the past and, uh, including the, my comic shop country that's behind me that our people watching might be able to see. <laughs> um, so yeah, shout out to, to your wife, the graphic designer. Uh, but again, thank you for being part of this, uh, to our audience. Thank you for listening or watching. Make sure you come back in two weeks for the, 2021 finale of my comic shop book club uh, i'm going to be joined by a buddy of mine named nick jones and we will be discussing the 1994 dc comics event zero hour uh, so make sure that you come back in two weeks and one week from today mike will also be joining me again on digging for kryptonite we're going to be talking about superman in the golden age so there's yet another episode uh, of the two of us discussing so i hope that you will the check that one. out yeah yes i am very excited so uh so thank you again thank you to our audience and remember they're all imaginary stories. My Comic Shop Book Club is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Kristen San Gregorio, music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to check out my other podcasts, Digging for Kryptonite and My Comic Shop History. Sign up for exclusive content, including the official Book Club companion podcast at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon.